are listening to Cold Lake Community Church Podcast. I hope today's message inspires you. Cold Lake Community Church, a place where families come together. Thank you very much. That's very, very kind. Uh, it is a joy and delight uh, to be here this morning. I was sharing uh, earlier that every, you know, every guest speaker comes in and says it's a joy and delight to be here, and it is, and I really, really mean that because, uh, for many reasons, but one of the reasons is that I have been around the college now for some time. You know, if, if I taught Pastor Lance, you know I'm old. That's just the way it is. Um, and uh, I can remember coming here about 20 years ago or so, and again, it's even before Pastor Hayward and Effie were here. That makes me really old. Um, And I can remember coming and preaching in Cold Lake, and the church here was about 20 or 25 people at the time, and they were in a rented facility, and the church was not doing well. In fact, the church was dying. And uh, Pastor Hayward just confirmed this on Lance this morning that they actually, just shortly after that time, they shut it down. And then, of course, Pastor Hayward came and did a replant. And to see what God has done in those 20 years or a little bit less, to go from nothing, a church that literally died and was shut down, to this, to a thriving church today, a wonderful church, Christian community with your own building in the heart of Cold Lake. It is just awesome to see what God has done. I'm a Jewish Christian with a nose like this. You know I'm not Asian. You figured that out. Um, And it warms my little Jewish heart to see what God has done in the last 20 years or so in this place, in this community. Glory to God. Praise God. Glory to God. It is wonderful to be here and see the life and the health in a church and community like this. And, you know, it's kind of a nice thing. Uh, 2013 uh, is a big year for me and for my wife. Uh, First of all, I have been now at the college for 20 years. Uh, 20, I started when I was 10. Do the math. Uh, 20 years teaching at the school. And in fact, uh, this year on June 30th, my wife and I will celebrate our 30th anniversary. We have been married for 30 years. Yeah, she was eight when we got together, just FYI. Um, so this is a big year. 20 years in school, 30 years married. Actually, I'll be 53 years old later this year. I've been in ministry now for 28 years. So 2013 is a, is a big year, especially because of our anniversary. Now, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, after 30 years, my wife and I know each other pretty well. You would expect that, wouldn't you? After 30 years, I can tell you truthfully that uh, my wife knows me better than anybody else on this planet. Folks, my wife knows the Steve Herzog that you don't see. My wife knows what I... She's seen me at my best and at my worst. She knows what I look like when I get up in the morning. She knows that my stomach bulges and my biceps... Do not. She knows firsthand that my morning breath could knock out an adult rhinoceros at 30 yards. And she knows 
what diseases I have. She knows that I have furniture disease. My chest has fallen into my drawers. I hate that. Um, and you know, she's she seen me at my, at my worst. And she loves me anyways. Just like Jesus, by the way. And if I can extend the analogy even further, if you permit me this morning, I have been in the school for 20 years. In fact, I've been in ministry for 28 years. And after 28 years in ministry, both in the church, uh, churches and in the college, let me tell you something. I, I've been around the church for a while. I think I know the church pretty well. Like my wife and I, I have seen the church, folks, at its best and at its worst after 28 years. I've seen the church at its best. I have. When I got saved in 1979 and came into the church, I got saved, uh, went to a church, Pentecostal church in downtown Montreal called Evangel Church, right across the street from the old forum where God's team, the Montreal Canadiens, used to play hockey. I know, I get groans and everything. Bear with me here. Um, and you know, I came into that church, and just before I got saved, a good friend of mine, his name was Serge, he got saved just before I did. You know how he came to Christ? He was down in the States. He was on drugs. He was uh, drinking. There was just a lot of bad things happening in his life, uh, living much like the prodigal son. He came to a point in his life where he was really desperate. He had run out of money, run out of everything, and, uh, and he needed to get home. He had no money to get home. So he actually knew enough at that time to go to a local Pentecostal church. He walked in. It was a weeknight. They were having a weeknight service. It was actually a young adult service. There was a bunch of young adults worshiping there. And he went in and he asked them for help. He said, can anyone here help me? Uh, I'm from Montreal. I'm kind of down on my luck. Can anyone here help me with money for a bus ticket home? And almost immediately, one of the young men in the meeting said to him, look, I don't have any money on me right now. But if you can hang around a few days, I'll sell my guitar. And then I'll give you the money for a bus ticket home. This is a total stranger, folks. Never seen him before in his life. And another young guy at the meeting piped in and he said, yeah. And while you're waiting for Lance over there to sell his guitar, why don't you come and stay at my house? I have an extra bed. You can just bunk in with me. And he did. And, and the guy was so shocked. He came into this Christian community, this young adult group at the church, for the very first time, a complete stranger, and people just took him in. They loved him. And he hung out there for several days. In fact, he actually attended a Sunday service there as well. He was so impressed with the love and the community and the acceptance he found in this Pentecostal church. And by the way, good to his word, I think it was five or six days later, that young man actually did sell his guitar, and gave Serge the money, and it was enough to get him a one-way bus ticket home. And all the way back to Montreal on the bus, he had several hours, many hours to think about this, he was just, just reflecting and thinking about how these people in this church had been so incredibly nice to him, a total stranger. And he was so convicted by the love that he saw in this Christian community down in the state somewhere, that when he got back to Montreal, one of the very first things he did is he went to the local Pentecostal church the next Sunday and he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. Praise God. And he's still serving God 
today. And by the way, that to me is an example of the church at its best. I've seen that many times, praise God. But if, if I'm going to be honest with you this morning, I also have to say I've seen the opposite too. I've seen the church several times at its worst. You know, you hang around for 28 years in ministry and you see a lot of churches divide and split and there's factions and fighting and sometimes over the stupidest, pettiest things. Some years ago, I read a book by Charles Colson called The Body. He talks about a church in the States that split, had a huge split, literally even fistfights in the church. Over what? I'll tell you. Over the color of the church carpet. So folks, I've seen the church, I've seen it petty, I've seen it, I've seen it at its worst, but I've also seen it at its best. I've seen the ideal. I've seen what the church could be and should be. And in my mind, I, I can describe the ideal church to you with, with great detail. My, my heart is full of passion for that church. And by the way, just as an aside, I have never yet, I've been in ministry for 28 years, I have never yet seen a perfect church. And if I did, I wouldn't go anywhere near it. I wouldn't go inside. Because if I did, I'd spoil it for them. The church would cease to be perfect the moment I walked in the door. Because I am an imperfect human being. And the fact is, we're all imperfect human beings. I have never ever seen yet a perfect church. But I know in my heart, kind of, the ideal church. I've seen what it could look like. And, and I've never yet seen one, but I've seen what it could look like. And I've seen what the church often is. And so, folks, to be honest this morning, most of us have to admit, we live in the gap, don't we? We live in the gap between what the church could be and should be, and on the other hand, what the church often is. And so the question today is, what do we do with that gap. You know, some people see the gap. They see the way the church should be. They see the way it is, and they get disgusted. And they just give up on the church, and they leave. And they don't want anything to do with church or with organized religion. The attitude is very well summed up by a guy years ago who showed up outside a Billy Graham crusade, and he was actually protesting the crusade. He had a sign, a placard, and the sign had four words on it, and it said, Jesus, yes, church, no. And that sums up the attitude of a lot of people these days. Jesus, yes. Church, no. A lot of people feel that way, and they just give up on the church. And folks, that's happening all the time. Every year in North America, 4,000 churches close, and only 1,000 new ones open. Between 1990 and 2000, combined membership of all Protestant churches in the States decreased 9.5%, while at the same time, the U.S. population increased 11%. Every year in North America, 2.7 million church members fall into inactivity and leave the church. Here in Canada, in 1900, about 50% of our population regularly attended church. Doesn't mean they were Christian, but regularly attended church. A hundred years later, in the year 2000, that figure was only 10%. And by the way, it, there's a spiritual dropout rate in our society that's terrible, and it's even worse among our young people. A big, a big study came out in 2006 in the States. They tracked thousands of evangelical Christian young people, Christian kids, and what happened to their faith in university. And the results were actually very frightening. 
they found that if a Christian kid goes straight from high school to a secular public university, 52% of them will fall away from their faith in that university. They found that if a Christian kid goes straight from high school to a secular private university, 63% of them will fall away from their faith in university. They found that if a Christian kid, interestingly enough in the States, goes straight from high school to a Catholic university, 70% of them will leave the church, will fall away from their faith. And by the way, that same study found that if they don't go straight to these universities, if they do one year, just one year, in an explicitly post-secondary Christian institution, like a Bible college or YWAM or whatever, then the spiritual dropout rate after that falls to 28%. It's still too high, but it's half of what it is otherwise. By the way, that's the value of one year of Bible college. And that's why our Bible college, we have a lot of one-year programs. About 40% of our students, by the way, come just for one year, then they go on to, to SAIT or NATE or U of A or U of C or whatever. Um, they come for a year of discipleship, of grounding, a year of missions, best year of their life. And it grounds them in God's word. And by the way, if there's anybody here who feels a call to Bible college, you one year or four years, you feel you want to go into vocational ministry, please, folks, come and see me after the service. We, we'd love to chat with you and just encourage you and find out what God is doing in your life and help you if we can. So that'd be great. That's my little plug. I'll, I'll move on. Um, and by the way, the Canadian statistics are almost identical to the American ones. Big, big study came out last fall, fall of 2012, by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada called Hemorrhaging Faith. They did the same thing. They surveyed Christian high school kids in Canada. What happens to them in university spiritually? They found that 70%, 70% of Canadian evangelical kids, when they go to university, walk away from the church, walk away from the faith in university. 70%. So the stats in Canada are exactly the same. People see the gap in the church. They get turned off. They leave. But before we let the gap turn us off to the church, folks, there's one thing I want you to consider. The church isn't the only place in life I see a gap. For example, in my mind, I look at myself, and in my mind, I see Steve Herzog as the ideal husband. And then Patty speaks, and pfft, you know, the air very quickly goes out of my balloon. I have two adopted girls. Uh, in my mind, I see myself as the ideal adopted father. And then my girls speak. And I am very quickly reminded of reality. In my mind, I see my classes in school as dynamic and exciting and alive. And by the way, I teach history at the college. And yes, I know what some of you are thinking. History, uh, you're laughing, <laughs> I see that. History, that's so boring. No, it's not boring. <laughs> it's exciting. You've just had boring teachers come to Vanguard. We'll straighten you out. But the point is, the point is, folks, you know, I, in my mind, I see my classes as dynamic and exciting, and then my students speak or snore. And I am, again, quickly reminded of reality. So, folks, what do I do? Do I say I'm hopeless? Do, do I just give up on me? No, because God never gives up on me. And it's the same with you, and it's the same with the church. Folks, I long for the ideal, but I live with the gap. 
So what do I do? In the, in the meantime, I need to take the next step of obedience to close the gap, whether it's in my marriage, in my family, in my, in my classes, so to make them better. And it's the, we, it's the same thing with the church. We don't give up on the church because Jesus doesn't give up on the church. If you have your Bibles, please take them and turn to Matthew 16, verses 13 to 18. Uh, Matthew 16, well-known passage of Scripture, and it says this, or you have your Bible or your cell phone Bible, whatever. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Well, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Now look at verse 18. I really want to stress this. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it. Folks, Jesus' words are very often connected to context. It's, it's the first rule of hermeneutics or proper biblical interpretation. Context matters. So, for example, Jesus looks at farms full of grain and he talks about the fields being white unto harvest. He stands near a grape orchard and he talks about the kingdom of God being like a vineyard. And so context is, is very important in this passage too in Matthew 16. Jesus gives this little talk to his disciples, we're told in verse 13, when they were at a place called Caesarea Philippi. Folks, Caesarea Philippi was a Roman town in Israel. It wasn't a Jewish town. It was built as a Roman town. Romans lived there, and it was a place of pagan worship. In fact, it was basically the idolatry capital of first century Israel. And not only was there pagan worship there, but the pagan worship sometimes included child sacrifice. Caesarea Philippi was literally a place where people could hear the shrieks of dying children being killed on the altars. And for that reason, it became known in the local subculture as the gates of hell. So when Jesus says in verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not overcome it, he's saying, folks, no evil, no idolatry, no child sacrifice, I don't care how bad it is, nothing will beat the church. That is Jesus' commitment to the church, warts and all. And folks, today, 2,000 years or so later, that commitment has not changed. His goal for the church in Canada... His goal for the church in Alberta, in fact, his goal for the church in Cold Lake is to triumph over the gates of hell in this community. So what's our response? Do we believe what Jesus says about the church? And in fact, do we believe what Jesus says about himself? That he is the son of the living God and he can do it. Peter asks him, sorry, Jesus asked Peter in verse 15, who do you say I am? And Peter responds in verse 16. He says, well, you're the Messiah, or in Greek, the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says basically in, in, in verse 17, yeah, you got that right. What about us? Do we get it right? Do we realize who Jesus is 
and the depth of his commitment to building the church. Three things, very quickly, I, re- I, wanna, I think we need to realize this morning about what Jesus says about the church. Number one, from verse 18, number one, Jesus says, I will build. I will build. Folks, Jesus is building the church. And it's interesting, he doesn't take his disciples to some idyllic, you know, serene, holy place like the temple in Jerusalem to have this little chat with them. He takes them to a place known as the gates of hell. Why? Because building the church isn't easy. Building the church is blood, sweat, and tears. Jesus' disciples are going to go out after this, and they're going to plant churches, folks, all over. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, you know, Gentile cities like Philippi or Thessalonica or whatever, and it's not easy work. Most of them are going to be martyred for the faith. But despite that, the Holy Spirit is with them, signs, wonders, miracles happen, great things happen, and that little church grows. In fact, the church grows from literally a handful of people in Jesus' day to three centuries later, it's about 10% of the entire Roman Empire, and depending on estimates, that means it's between 5 and 10 million people, because the empire was 50 to 100 million people, roughly. So 300 years, the church grows. Folks, Jesus is committed to building his church. And when I say this, I mean that Jesus is com- committed to building visible, disciple-making communities. Not just a big church of five or ten or millions of people. Visible, disciple-making communities in, in local cities like Cold Lake. Not as a romantic or nice idea, but as real groups of real people who will love each other and love the people around them and so be a witness to the love and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I say visible disciple-making communities because people are supposed to see through his disciples what Christians and Christianity are supposed to look like. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 to 12. It says, his intent was that now through the church, catch that folks, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Folks, Jesus' intention for the church was to be able to hold up the church to the world, to show the church to the world and say, hey, everybody, look at this. Look at them. Look at my church. This is what I can do when people give their lives to me. This is what I can do with people when they say to me, yes, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Earlier, Ephesians reminds us that Jesus shed his own blood so the middle wall of partition is broken down. There's no more separation, folks, between Jews and Gentiles. He creates a new people, the people of God, not just you know, reformed Jews or cleaned up Gentiles, but an entirely new people, never before seen on the face of the earth, a people called the church. And you know, You look at history, I teach history, sometimes the church gets a bad rap. And to be honest, sometimes very deservedly so. But if you look at the history of the church folks overall, in fact, specifically, if you look at the history of Christian missions 
overall, the last two, three hundred years, it is absolutely fantastic, tremendous, what God has done through Christians, through Christian missionaries. Everywhere missionaries go, everywhere. They start schools, hospitals, orphanages, clinics, leper colonies, you name it, all over the world. They clothe the naked. They feed the hungry. They restore the sick back to health. Folks, that is Jesus building his church. And that is the church of God overcoming the gates of hell. That is taking death and turning it into life, like that beautiful story of that Haitian girl you mentioned earlier on, left for dead in a ditch at 9 or 11 years old. Some American family adopts her and gives her life. Folks, that is the church life-conquering death. I, I can give 28 years of my life to that. I have a problem, it's true, giving 28 years of my life to what I see in some of our churches. Churches that are full of petty arguments or squabbling. Dave Wells, our general superintendent, told a story to me a few years ago where uh, some years ago he was up uh, in a town, a community way, way up north, way beyond the Arctic Circle, somewhere in the Arctic. And they brought him in to do like a week of meetings. So he's doing meetings. And while he's having these services, these outreach services, two factions of the church are locked in a bitter struggle. There's two factions of the church literally duking it out. Do you know over what? Do you know what the tremendously divisive issue was? They were fighting, folks, like cats and dogs, over this. Over the location of the church freezer. The location of the church freezer in the Arctic. Who cares where the freezer is? Just chuck the stuff outside. It'll be frozen 11 months of the year anyways. You don't even need a freezer up there. Folks, I have trouble giving 28 years of my life to that. Folks, but I can give 28 years of my life to a church like my home church in Montreal. We saw tons of immigrants stream into the church, Ghanaians, Filipinos, Nigerians, even a few Jews like myself to keep everyone theologically on their toes, all of whom were made welcome, included in the life of the church, involved in leadership, and totally loved. And I know, because I speak from experience, because I was one of them, and I would not be here today with you if those people hadn't loved me into the kingdom. Now, was the church perfect? No. Was everybody in the church wonderful? No. Folks, every church is always going to have its characters, if you know what I mean. Every church, every church has a, a sister Jachenfluster who has her wig all tied up in a knot because she doesn't like the music. Or they have a brother Gesundheit who has a pickle up his bum because he doesn't like the preaching style. Folks, there are always going to be those people, the EGRs, you know, the extra grace required people in the church. Love them, bless them, but move on. Don't focus on them. Don't focus on the negative. When you look at the church, focus on the good. Focus on the positive. The same way Jesus does when he looks at you and me. Psalm 101, verse 6. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. The one whose walk is blameless will minister to me. Why? This brings me to my second point. Number one, Jesus says, I will build. 
He's building the church. But folks, if you look at verse 18 again, you find that he's not just building any church. Jesus says, point number two, I will build my church. Did you catch that, folks? My church, Jesus says. Which means, ipso facto, it's not Steve Herzog's Bible college or church. It's not Lance Steve's. It's not Hayward Eastman's church. It's God's church. It's Jesus' church. And let me tell you something, folks. I'm slow, but I'm worth waiting for. I read my Bible over and over again. And I see one thing I know about, about Jesus' church. Jesus' church is all about lost people. If, in fact, if you want the best little short, concise, pithy, one-phrase summary of why Jesus came to earth, you'll find it in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. It's very simple. The Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. What was lost. Jesus is all about lost people. His church is all about lost people. This means, folks, that sometimes there have to be changes in the church to reach lost people. And, and, and you know, sometimes uh, change doesn't always go over very well, does it? Um, I, I kind of speak from experience here. Uh, I was chatting with Pastor Lance about this earlier. Um, I'm an elder at my church. Uh, our church was located in downtown Edmonton. We were kind of the flagship Pentecostal church, the first Pentecostal church in town. And uh, we moved. In 2006, we ended up uh, moving. We sold the property downtown. And we moved to the, to the way to the boonies, to the suburbs, to the northwest corner of Edmonton, kind of right on the border of St. Albert, if you know where that is. And at the time, it was the least evangelized, least churched area of Edmonton. And uh, I'll be honest with you, that change did not go over well with a lot of people, with some people. Um, my pastor has a saying, the only person who really likes change is a wet baby. Um, but no, a lot, for a lot of us, change is tough. And I'll be very honest with you, we, we didn't just change locations. We did. We moved to the suburbs, kind of built a new building. But uh, we also changed stylistically. We, made our, we changed our worship to make it more relevant. We changed the order of our service to do the same. And, uh, and uh, <laughs> folks, that went over like pork chops at a bar mitzvah with some of our people. <laughs> and, uh, and they left. I'll just be fair, very candid with you. A number of people, a good number of people, left the church and they were very upset and, and blah, 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 because they really didn't like what was going on. And I'll be even more candid with you guys. I'm an elder in the church. I didn't even like some of the things that were going on. But you know something? That's okay. You know why? Because it's not about me. Jesus' church is all about lost people. And all I can tell you is this. Since we moved, wonderful things have been happening at the church. When we moved, when we left in 2006, we were averaging 500 people just under in one, on a, in one single service on a Sunday morning. Today, we're at two services. We're at consistently over 1,200 people every single Sunday in our church. Hallelujah. Attendance has gone like this. Giving has gone like this. Virtually every Sunday in our church, somebody is getting saved. Our church is now full of families. Our church is full of kids. There's young people. I mean, we got kids coming out of our wazoo. It's a wonderful problem to have. And our church also, I've been there for 23 years, 
our church is probably more united behind the leadership and behind the vision now than we've ever been in my time there. Amen. Folks, and I'm not surprised. Good things happen as we adapted, as we changed to reach lost people. And by the way, I'm not surprised because it's biblical. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 20, it says to the Jews, Paul says, I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those not having the law, I become like not one not under the law. So by all means, I may win some. Folks, that's the key. When the apostle Paul was preaching in Jerusalem, he quoted the Old Testament. When he was preaching in Athens, he changed his style, and he quoted Greek philosophers. Why? In order to win people. God's church is all about lost people. That, sorry, that is the biblical way. And by the way, it's not always my way. If I were God, folks, I would probably just appear in the sky as this huge, towering, threatening figure and blare out, okay, all you inhabitants of planet Earth, you have exactly 37 seconds to turn or burn. 37 seconds to join my church. You know, reorientate or incinerate. The countdown starts now. Folks, that's my way. But that's not God's way. Our God came as a baby, dependent on a human mother. He worked, he lived, he ate, he slept among us. He was stripped, he was beaten, he was whipped, he was put on a cross and killed, all after a completely unjust trial. Folks, he gave himself up for the church. Jesus didn't do it the easy way or the threatening way. He did it the sacrificial way. And that's how a church is built. And I'm no marriage expert. Come and take the marriage seminar later on. But folks, allow me to suggest to you this morning, that's how a marriage is built. That's how a family is built. The sacrificial way. You just come into your family. You go into your marriage and say, well, wife, I am the husband. I'm the head of the home. You better obey me. You better listen up because otherwise... Well, you do that, you're just going to blow up your family. You're going to blow up your marriage. I can guarantee it. I know from personal experience because I tried it. And it doesn't work. And allow me to suggest the same thing is true of the church, isn't it? You just come into the church and demand your rights and demand your own way. It's like, Pastor Lance, I've been here a long time. I've been here before you. I've been here before Pastor Hayward. And I don't care what you say. In fact, I don't care what the entire leadership says. It's my way or the highway. You know, I don't. Folks, you do that, and you're just going to blow up the church. You're just going to blow up the church. But if the church, if people in the church start showing up en masse and start serving and loving and sacrificing, folks, it is amazing what God can do through his church. It's amazing what God can do right here to the church in Cold Lake. It's amazing. And folks, understand something here. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's not just his church. Consider this for one second. It's also his bride. His bride. It's his wife. Jesus loves the church. Five times in the book of Revelation alone, the church is described as the bride of Christ. Now, folks, she's been making her way down the aisle for 2,000 years. And yes, you wonder sometimes what Jesus sees in her. She's stumbled, she's fallen, and she's sunk pretty low at times. Her dress is all dirty in the, in the mud. Her veil is all torn. True enough. 
No argument. So what would Jesus want? Would he want someone to throw more mud on her? Would he want someone to scream and yell at her and get her even dirtier? No, because this is his bride. Jesus wants to pick her up, wash her with water, and cleanse her. Folks, there's already one who condemns her. There's already an accuser of the brethren. And you know something? We don't need to be. He wants us to help her up, to clean her up, to feed her, to nurture her, and to help her be all she can be and achieve her destiny. Because, folks, this is my third and last point this morning. She has a great destiny. Jesus says, I will build, number one. Point number two, my church. And number three, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Folks, the church has a great destiny. One day she will triumph. The gates of hell won't even beat her. One day she will rise and have a marriage supper with the Lamb. One day she'll be glorious without spot or wrinkle. Hallelujah. Jesus knows she will prevail, so he never gives up on her question. What about us? What about us? I I said before, 70% of Canadian young people leave the church when they get to university. It's not just young people, folks. Pastors. Do you know that in North America, 1,500 pastors every single month, month, leave the ministry, leave the church? That's 18,000 a year. And folks, it's easy, it's very easy to take a look at the gap we talked about between what the church is and what it should be. Because it exists. That's the truth. And then it's very easy to become cynics, to get cynical. And to be so turned off with the church, we don't want anything to do with it anymore. And sometimes I think people look at what's happening in the church and they, they actually make accurate observations but they come to the wrong conclusions with the wrong attitude. Yeah, they say there's a huge gap between what it is and what it should be, and so I'm just going to leave. I'm going to take off. Well, folks, it's easy to join culture, abandoning the church, ridiculing the church. You can do this if you want, but the thing is, if you do that, you're not being like Jesus, because Jesus doesn't do that. Don't ask me why. Don't ask me why Jesus hangs in there. It would be so easy for him to grant the church a certificate of divorce, you know, wash his hands and, and send her away after all she's done. Only one problem. He can't do it. You know why? Because it's his bride. He loves her too much. And folks, I'm married for 30 years. I, again, I'm no marriage guru at all. But I think, I think, I understand maybe just a little bit of how Jesus feels. Um, my wife and I, the first seven years of our marriage were not good. And that's putting it mildly. I come from a, a broken home, very dysfunctional home, lots of, lots of issues. My wife uh, comes from a Christian home, but she had her own issues. And folks, let me tell you something. When we got together, the first seven years of our marriage were a total nightmare. We were always fighting, always arguing. We, we could have been divorced a hundred times. We thought of divorce. Uh, we both of us wanted to divorce. And yet something, I know in my own case, so, I, I honestly thought of doing it many, many times, but something, something held me back. I couldn't do it. Why? Because deep, deep down in my heart, I loved her too much. And I couldn't do it. And folks, 
we loved each other so much that despite all the friction and the tension, that we actually stayed together and we worked on our marriage. And in the end, our future became way better than our past ever was. And we worked on our marriage. We don't have a perfect marriage today, but let me tell you something. It's a thousand times better than it was, and I can honestly look you in the face and say, I love her more today than I have ever loved her. And I am so glad we did not split up and become a statistic. I am so glad we, hey, we hung in there and we made a better future for ourselves. And folks, if that applies to Patty and I, that applies about a billion times more to us and the church. Folks, I know the church has problems, but I got news for you. I read the last chapter of this book, and guess what? We win! Hallelujah! And we win together as a church. The gates of hell don't triumph over us. Somebody once said that the church of God is a little bit like Noah's Ark. There's a lot of stink on board, but it's the best thing afloat. And folks, I, I, I like so much what your pastor said earlier in the service when he was talking about that wellness center, which is a, a wonderful idea and a great project, by the way. Sounds awesome. But did, did, did you catch what Lance said? Lance said, even if I had all the money in the world, didn't have enough volunteers. If I had all the volunteers in the world, wouldn't have enough money. In other words, he said, I can't do this myself. The only way we're going to do this is if we come together as a community. And folks, he is so dead on. That's why we need the church. Folks, you are not going to reach Cold Lake by yourself. It's impossible. You don't have enough time. You don't know enough people. None of us can do, none of us can reach the lost people, Luke 19, 10, by ourselves. But the church as a body can. And as Lance said, the church is not a building. The church is us. The church is a people. And folks, together, in community, as a church, it's amazing what God can do in and through us and what God wants to do and will do if we hang in there and remain faithful to his church. Can we stand together? I'd just like to pray over you before we close. You know, we were singing that song before, Your Love Never Fails. And uh, there was a part, a line in that song, I know I make mistakes, but you have new mercies for me every day. And folks, the church is the same way. Church makes mistakes, but there are new mercies every day. Folks, the ch God is going to make sure that the gates of hell don't prevail on the church. The church wins in the end. Can we pray together? Lord, we love you so much. I thank you for what you've done here in Cold Lake. Well, I look at, at this great congregation, this thriving church. And I remember what it was here 20 years ago when the church was dying and had to be shut down. So Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the rebirth, for the renaissance of your church here in Cold Lake. I thank you for the signs and the wonders and the miracles you have performed. I thank you for the lives that were changed and touched and that are testimonies to your grace and your power and your love and that are sitting right here in this auditorium. And so, Lord, right now I ask you to bless these people. Lord God, bless them. I pray, Father, that you would, in their hearts, help them, oh God. Just give them a, a hunger, Lord God, a thirst, a yearning, a passion for the church and to be the church here in Cold Lake and to come together as a community and love this city 
and love these people into the kingdom and bless them and serve them and sacrifice for them together as a body. Lord, help them to know there is no end to what you can do through this group of people as they commit to serving you together as a body, as a church. Help them to know, Lord, that you are going to do things bigger than anything they can ask or expect or imagine or think. You're going to stretch out your hand. You're going to bear your arm and you are going to bless the city through this church. And bless everyone now hearing my voice. Lord, just touch them even now as we go. Help us leave today and and throughout this entire day, just go with, with a God consciousness, aware of how much you love us and how much you want to use us to build the church and to touch this community. And everybody said, amen. Thank you so much. God bless you guys. We hope you've been blessed by this teaching from Coley Community Church. Thank you for your continued support of this ministry. Holy Community Church, a place where families come together.